Good morning. All right, we have two scripture readings today. The first from the Old Testament. If you'd like to follow along on the Pew Bible, it is page 649, Psalm 118, verses 19 through 24. That's Psalms 118, verses 19 through 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Our second reading is from the New Testament. It's on page 1044, if you'd like to follow along, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, good job, good job. Uh, amen, amen. Well, welcome again, and by now I'm sure you've figured out that Pastor John is not here today, um, and he and Connie are in Knoxville, but fear not, they are coming back. Uh, they should be back here this week, and will be, John will be back preaching, um, he better be, next Sunday. Um, you know, John is such a wonderful pastor and such a great preacher. You can only imagine that trying to fill in for him is beyond daunting. Uh, it is truly, it is truly humbling. And as I thought about that this week, it reminded me of a quote from Winston Churchill. And before I give you the quote, let me give you the backstory a little bit. Winston Churchill, as you know, was among other things, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, specifically 1940 to 1945. And of course, he was a stalwart leader and did a magnificent job. But strangely, two months after the Germans surrendered, there was an election in Great Britain and his party was ousted. And he was replaced by a new prime minister, a man by the name of Clement Attlee, who most of us probably never heard before. 
Well, the story goes, I'm finally getting to the story. The story goes that Churchill in 1945, after this succession of power, he was in the U.S. and he was meeting with Harry Truman. And they were talking and Harry Truman said to Churchill, he said, you know, a few days ago I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Attlee. And Mr. Attlee struck me as a, a pretty humble guy. To which Winston Churchill, without missing a beat, quipped, yeah, Attlee is a humble guy and he has a lot to be humble about. <laughs> and I got to tell you the truth, as I prepared this week, and I thought about being humbled, I kept hearing God say, yes, Jay, and you have much to be humble about. So with that, let's pray. Let's pray. We need it. I need it. Father in heaven, we do come to you, and um, seriously, we come to you with great need, but great thanksgiving. You have given us your word, and then you've given us your spirit, so that we might understand your word, and not just understand your word, but be transformed by it. And so, Lord, we pray now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, help us, help us to hear your word, to understand your word. Oh, Lord, help us, and help us to be transformed by it in the ways that you have always intended. Father, we do pray that, oh, that the meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, my dear dad lived for his retirement. He spoke often of what he planned to do, where he planned to go, how he planned to live then, that is, after he retired. But meanwhile, dad lived a mostly uneventful life, sort of uh, if you know T.S. Eliot's poem, J. Alfred Prufrock, uh, my dad lived and, um, quote, measured out his life with coffee spoons as he waited, as he waited to turn 55. Well, that longed-for birthday finally came on a dreary day in December 1982. But already bone-tired and soul-weary from a year-long battle with cancer, Dad went to his eternal rest a mere six months later. Well, I had just turned 27 when Dad died and just become a father myself. And witnessing the tragedy of my dad's unlived life made an indelible impression on my own. And I would say at the macro level, it was a lesson well learned. It's guided probably every major decision that Denny and I have made in the 40 years since. However, even now, at age 67, if you're doing the math, at the micro level, at the micro level of day by day, moment by moment living, I realize that I still keep catching myself missing the point. More frequently than I care to admit, I'm thinking, if not talking about, just getting past the current thing. I find myself thinking, if not saying, and sometimes saying, as soon as I get through this, then, you know, as soon as I get through this crisis, this semester, this stage of life, this stage of my kids' lives, this project, this doctor's visit, this sermon, well, not this sermon, but <laughs> as soon as I start that job or as soon as I retire, as soon as I get through this, then, then what? 
Then I can live, then I can breathe, then I can rest. Then what? I, and I suspect many of us, young and old alike, to some degree, live this way. As if, it were, as if life were some grand scavenger hunt. You know what a scavenger hunt is? It's a contest or a game where you go to a point and you, you get a clue and you collect something and then that clue takes you to the next waypoint and, and then that takes you to the next waypoint and that takes you to the next waypoint. And it's all about getting done and moving on. To where? <laughs> to the next waypoint, of course. And as a game, this may be fun, <laughs> but as a lifestyle, it's exhausting. It's as if life were just an endless series of problems to be solved. And if that's how we're doing life, we are missing the point. Good news is our text this morning, our text this morning will call us out of this foolishness. It comes from an Old Testament book, Jeremiah, book of prophecy. And the author for whom the book was named, as you may know, was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel, to Judah. And he was a prophet for a long time, more than 40 years. He started with King Josiah, a good king in the southern kingdom, and all the way through and past the siege of Jerusalem and the exile. And Jeremiah, this is a long book, 52 chapters, and if essentially he was sent to do four things, and he does four things in the book. He, number one, to indict the people. Number two, to call them to repentance. Number three, to pronounce sentence upon them for their lack of repentance. And number four, to announce God's promise of redemption. Redemption not only from the physical exile, but ultimate redemption, messianic redemption, which of course appears in his prophecy as well. Well, like I say, it's a long book, but we're in chapter six this morning in our text. So we're near the beginning of this long book. And we're in the middle of that long chapter. And in that chapter, there is indictment and there's warning of punishment, but tucked right in the, in the middle, if you will, is the verse, one verse that is our text this morning, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 16 of Jeremiah. And you can follow along with me on the screen. You can look in your Bibles, but we'll probably be finished by the time you get to it. So you might want to look at the screen. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, the original hearers of this clarion call, that is the people of Judah, they would have been at that time careening toward exile in Babylon. They were a soul-weary people who for centuries had been running down dead-end paths, or as the old country music songs paraphrase says, looking for rest in all the wrong places. And immersed in this reality, Jeremiah begins this vital summons by invoking God's covenantal name. Look how it starts. It says, thus says the Lord. It doesn't say, thus says God. The Hebrew for God, the generic, is Elohim. No, the Hebrew here, because it's, it's translated, thus says the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, means that signals to us that the Hebrew word here is Yahweh. 
the covenantal name of God, the name that is precious and revered because it communicates that God has made pledges to this people and this people have made pledges to him. And so Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is invoking this call to repentance with a call to say, thus says the Lord, Yahweh. In other words, it's as if he's saying, guys, listen up. This is important. This is critical. And then he follows that, when you go through this little passage, he follows that with a progressive sequence of five imperatives. Walk with me in those. First imperative, stand by the roads, he says. The roads. He'll use in this one little verse, if you look at it, roads, path, way, three different ways of figuratively, and you can look Old Testament, New Testament, but they're all ways of expressing a way of life, a lifestyle. And he's saying, stand by these roads, these choices, stop. He's saying, stop where you are. There are multiple choices here of how you could live, but there's only one right one, and you're on the wrong one. That's what he's saying to them. Stop. Stand by the roads. And then his second imperative is look. Now that you've stopped, he says, look, pay attention. You're at an intersection, so to speak, and you've got a choice. And consider, contemplate the direction you will choose. So we have stand and look. Third imperative ask. Ask. Seek guidance. Seek strength. In other words, pray, he's saying. Pray. And he says, moreover, he says, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And as he does that, he's not, he's not plowing new ground for them or for him. He, he could go back 400 years to Solomon. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, ways, hear it, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be health to your flesh and refreshment, refreshment to your bones. You hear the echo? You hear the resonance there? So Jeremiah wasn't plowing new ground, and he could have gone to Psalm 23. He could have gone back a generation earlier to David in Psalm 23, and tucked in there is David's talking about the Lord as my shepherd who leads me, who leads me in paths of righteousness. So this was not, this summons was not new, was not new to Jeremiah, was not new to the people he was talking to. It was ancient. It was ancient. But let's be sure to understand this call to the ancient path, the good way. Jeremiah is not being nostalgic. He might be hearkening from the past, but he's not being nostalgic. The ancient path is not good because it's ancient. It's ancient because it's good. In fact, it's fascinating. That same word, that same Hebrew word that's translated ancient here in Jeremiah, it's translated everlasting elsewhere. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says, um, lead me in the way, and the word is olam, lead me in the way, olam, lead me in the way everlasting. So you hear this word ancient path, it has a semantic range that includes ancient, old, and everlasting forever. That's what's tied up in this, and that's what he's calling 
That's what Jeremiah is calling them to, this ancient, quote, everlasting path. Because this is the way of life. It is ancient. It's the way of life that was intended for Adam and Eve in the garden. And God, through Jeremiah in this passage, is calling his beloved people to live life as it was always intended for their present as well as their eternal good. Stand, look, ask. And the fourth imperative, now that you've seen the ancient path, the good way, walk in it. Walk in it. And walk, we know again, Old Testament, New Testament, it refers to a pattern of conduct. This is a call to follow God. The good shepherd again of Psalm 23, if you will. That's the fourth imperative. We have stand, we have look, we have ask and walk. And the fifth and final imperative is not only an imperative, it's a promise. It's an imperative and a promise. This final imperative. They, if they would walk in the ancient paths, Jeremiah is saying, his hearers, they are being exhorted and guaranteed to find, to discover rest. And not just any rest, Soul rest, rest for their souls. Jeremiah will make this promise even more explicitly. If you go further in chapter 31, he says, For I will, God says, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Well, soul rest is, of course, for the soul weary. And soul weary is something deeper than bone tired. Sleep can't touch it. Maybe you've experienced this. I have. And take note here, the weariness, the soul weariness per se, is not mentioned in the passage explicitly. It's implied. It's a given in the passage because soul weariness is a condition that is endemic to all who are born of Adam, including God's people. Well, those are the five imperatives and the promise. How do the people respond? How do they respond? Ah, their response is immediate, it's emphatic, and it's self-indicting. But they said, we will not walk in it. They flatly reject God. They refuse to walk in the ancient paths, the good way, the way of righteousness. And thereby, they refuse to enter God's rest. It's frightening. It's shocking response, at least to me. But you know, to Jeremiah, I'm sure he wasn't surprised at all. And for a number of reasons, but one reason in particular, again, Jeremiah, of course, is a prophet. He knows his scripture. And Jeremiah could rightly see that this response, this remarkable, blatant rejection of God was really a fulfillment of an ominous prediction that Joshua made some 800 years before Jeremiah. You'll remember Joshua. Joshua is the protege of Moses. He's the one, you know, Moses dies just at the edge of the promised land. And Joshua is the one that takes them across the river Jordan into the promised land. They defeat the Canaanites. They allot the land. And you get to the end of the book, which is also the end of Joshua's life. 
chapter 24, and Joshua calls them all together. He assembles all the tribes of Israel, and he does that so that he can renew the covenant. He reminds them of all the things that God has done for them over all these many years, and he reminds them, because he's going to be dying, he reminds them and exhorts them, serve the Lord, put away your idols, serve the Lord. And how do they respond? Very different from the Jeremiah crowd. They respond and say, yeah, yeah, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We will not fool around with idols. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but, okay, that's how they respond. But what does Joshua then? Joshua then responds to them. Do you remember what he said? It is just remarkable. It is striking. So he has told them, he said, he said, this is what God has done, serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people respond, yes, we'll serve the Lord. And here's what Joshua says. Chapter 24, verse 19. This is what he says to the, quote, obedient people. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. Wow. <laughs> Wait a minute. They did what he said, said to, for them to do. And he just flatly says to them, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. And it's sort of an enigmatic statement. But when you think about it, Joshua has identified the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem of the people then, the crux of the problem of the people in Jeremiah's day, and of course the crux of the problem for us. And that is simply God is holy and we are not. And that means we're powerless to find, much less walk the ancient paths, the good way, and therefore, we are powerless and unable to escape our restless wandering. In short, we need a savior. That's what Joshua is saying. We need a savior. You can't do this. Well, nearly 1,500 years after Joshua, Jesus, Jesus, by the way, whose name, as you may know, happens to be the Greek form of Joshua, Jesus would claim to be that desperately needed savior. And he would proclaim it in a number of ways, in a number of places. But in one place in particular, I would say it was providentially reminiscent of Jeremiah's imperatives. Jesus would beckon the soul weary of his day and ours to come to find that very rest that's promised in the Jeremiah text. Now, as I read this, it'll be familiar to you, but think about it in terms of Jeremiah's five imperatives. You're not going to find a dot-to-dot -dot correlation, but see if you don't hear a resonance, a resonance. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus, like Jeremiah, is beckoning us, and specifically, he's beckoning us to follow him. And more than that, in other places, it's not just Jesus saying that, promising that he will lead us to the ancient paths where the good way is, but if you think about, say, the book of John, In 14, chapter 14, verse 6, 
he will actually make the statement that he is the way, the ancient path that leads to eternal life. Remember that situation? He had just told his disciples that he's going away, but he's going to prepare a place for them, that his father's house has many rooms, and that there's a room made ready for them, and that he, he will take them there. And Thomas, you got to love Thomas. You know, if Peter was impulsive, Thomas was just candid. It was his, his inner voice kept coming out vocally. Because, you know, at, after the resurrection, Thomas said, I'm not believing unless I can put my fingers in the, in, the, in the nail holes, right? And here, when he hears this business of, oh, there's a place prepared for me, and, and I'll come and take you there, he says, he says how are we going to get there? We don't know the way. To which Jesus then says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And and make no mistake, just to make clear the very next sentence in that verse, in case you think, well, he's saying, I am a way. He says, no, 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 I am the way, the way. Because the next verse, or the same verse, next sentence, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus it's not just calling us to the way, the ancient path of righteousness. He's saying, more than that, I am that way. Well, how could that be? How could, the, how could he be the way? And it had to be perplexing to poor Thomas and the others. But writing from our side of the cross, Paul would explain it numerous places, but no place better then in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he says this, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness, the holiness of God. It's what Luther or Cal- and Calvin, for that matter, would call the great exchange where we give Jesus our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, bore our sin that we might have his righteousness, and that empowers us, that empowers us to walk in the ancient paths, the paths which Joshua so bluntly tells us we are otherwise powerless to do. I would suggest then that Jeremiah's five imperatives, as understood and fleshed out on this side of the cross, are ultimately a call to follow Jesus. They are. A call to follow Jesus. Stand by the roads and look and cry out for the only way of salvation, the only way to the Father, the ancient path to life everlasting, namely Jesus. And then walk in it, follow him. That's what Jeremiah tells us. That's what God tells us in Jeremiah. And Paul Paul will tell us, you know, in Ephesians 2, in that, again, very familiar passage where he he just proclaims the gospel in a few short verses where he says, you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ, and it's through through faith, by grace, and not of your own doing so that you can boast. But it's a gift, he says. If we can respond to that call, we respond because it's a gift. We've been given that gift. And then at the end of that little section in Ephesians 2, this is how he caps, how Paul caps it. He said, and now let me tell you what that gift is for. He says, for we are 
his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I would suggest to you that Ephesians 2.10 reveals to us something so, so precious and helpful. It reveals that as we heed Jeremiah's five imperatives, we can find soul rest beginning to bud and even blossom as we walk in this life, not simply after we retire to the next. And we're not following these imperatives to earn the soul rest that we so need. No, no. We're following them to enjoy and live out what God has so richly granted. Remember, we're walking in what he has prepared beforehand. As David tells us in Psalm 23, as I follow my shepherd, and we know the good shepherd there, David, of course, didn't have his name. We do, Jesus, because Jesus told us he's the good shepherd. So David says in Psalm 23, as I, as I follow, in the following of Jesus, he leads me in the ancient paths of righteousness. And he also makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside still waters. And he restores my soul. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. And goodness and mercy are following me. Literally, the Hebrew is, are pursuing me. And that is happening now if we are in Christ. And it will happen until that day when our soul rest comes into full bloom as we dwell in God's house forever. That's what David says. That's what God says through David in Psalm 23. You see, this is the ancient path that was intended for our first parents in the garden, the way of life for which they and we were designed, but they did not walk in it. Ever since Adam and Eve's exile from the garden, the human condition has been that of restless wandering. We wander through the challenges of life, scavenging for whatever snatches of satisfaction we can snag or manufacture. It's an exhausting hunt from stress point to stress point to stress point. And even the moments of respite often don't offer our soul rest because they're plagued with the unease of the fact that the next ominous cloud is already visible over the horizon. So what about you? What about me? Are you, are we appropriating this gospel message that we know so well into our daily work-a-day lives? Or are we still captive to the grand scavenger hunt? Well, if we are, there is an alternative. You were hoping for that, right? <laughs> some of my children, and I know some of your children as well, enjoyed the opportunity during the summer after their 11th grade year to go with their classmates on what was called the Grand Tour. And this was a nearly three-week, carefully planned and guided excursion through Greece and Italy, beginning in ancient Athens and culminating in the high Renaissance city of Venice. The students climbed Mars Hill where Paul preached. They walked through the Colosseum 
where early believers were martyred. They craned their necks at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and they stood in awe before David's Michelangelo. Michelangelo's David. I got to get straight who, who made the statue. Michelangelo's David. And they also were exposed to unfamiliar cultures and customs and languages. This was much more than a sightseeing trip. This is where their years of study came to fruition, and some would say history became experience. Well, I would dare suggest that God, through Jeremiah's five imperatives, in calling us to follow Jesus, is calling us out of our self-imposed scavenger hunt and calling us into the grand tour that he has carefully and uniquely designed for each of us. As his workmanship, Paul's word, not mine, created in Christ, each of us has been given a life, Paul says, that is chock full of good works that he, God, has tailor-made beforehand, involving challenging, if not exotic, places and all sorts of people, some of whom can be difficult to understand or appreciate. But by grace, through faith, and personally guided by the Holy Spirit, we have in Christ the opportunity every day to walk in these good works, an ancient path, the good way. And if we will take the time daily, and even throughout each day, to stand, to stop in the midst of this wonderful journey, and to look Consider, through the lens of God's word, what's going on around us. We will find ourselves traveling down ancient paths where the good way is. And if we will take the time to cry out to him, asking for the eyes to see and the strength to so walk in those paths, instead of running frantically from milepost to milepost and wishing it all away, if we'll do that, we will find that the righteousness already credited to us by the grace of Christ is actually being worked into us. Finally, in that, finally, we will begin to find the deep rest for which our weary souls are so longing. Well, what about my dad? Well, as you might imagine, Benny and I shared the gospel with him on multiple occasions with no apparent effect. But two days before he died, a nurse in the hospital where he was being cared for shared the gospel with him, and she reported out to me that he embraced it as his own. So, by God's glorious grace, Dad's retirement... <laughs> proved to be more blessed than he could have ever imagined, and he found rest for his weary soul. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We do pray, we do pray that you would help us, help us to walk in your path. Help us to follow Jesus. Help us, help us, Lord not to wish our lives away, but to really walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to do. Father, we pray this because, as Joshua said, we can't serve you. We need you to enable us to serve you.
And so we ask that as you told us to ask that. And we do it with full expectation because in Jesus we know that you love us dearly. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us and sing, Lord, I need you.